Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Noah Hutton sets out to document a brilliant neuroscientist who has become frustrated in his field's status quo with time elapsing and millions of dollars on the line in silico explores the audacious 10-year quest to simulate the entire human brain on supercomputers along the way it reveals the profound beauty of tiny mistakes and bold predictions this is a wonderful documentary film called in silico and we're joined today here for lapsus one of his brilliant film earlier films so happy to have him back noah hutton no, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, Mike. It's always good to be here. We see it in the film about your your dogged determination to document what was going on with this project. What was the first instance where you thought, I need to know more about this, and then eventually becomes what we know as in silico? I just was someone who got really hooked on everything having to do with brain science when I was in college. First thing that really got me hooked was a book called why God won't go away. You know, I grew up somewhat religious, not overly religious. I had a Jewish upbringing. I was bar mitzvah and everything. And I, you know, I was around that, that influence and I hadn't really been around a deep scientific influence yet. But then I, I read this book that put a, a bunch of people in brain scanners, the uh, people who practice religion, you know, in a, in a deep way, monks, priests, rabbis, and it, it was trying to correlate what happens in the brain um, during peak religious experiences that they were that they would self-report with um, the actual neural activity that was observed in the brain scanner. And they found profound similarities across religions. And it had to do with sort of losing control of your sense of orientation in space. That was the brain region. In other words, when they see when they see this brain region in people in patients with strokes, when they see it damaged, these patients can't orient themselves in space anymore. So I thought, wow, that's incredible. There's a piece of piece of tissue in the brain where it's, if it's damaged, you lose your sense of three-dimensional orientation. But, you know, in, the, in these religious people who self-report these peak religious experiences, they are able to somehow um, bring themselves or through the power of prayer or whatever they're doing, bring themselves to a, a, a level of brain activity that almost mimics stroke-like, you know, damage to these areas. So they, they are breaking down their sense of orientation in space. And that, I guess that would be the sort of cliche thing of of oneness with the world right but it's a re- it actually turns out to maybe have a real neural reality so i found that um insight really really interesting and i i wanted to know more about what else the sort of the, the contemporary research into the brain was telling us about uh, how this this um piece of tissue makes up our our sense of consciousness and reality and how it's possible that these cells could underlie our thought and everything and you know it's something that i think a lot of people come across and they find it amazing but i went i I decided to start taking classes i was i was in school i I was able to start immediately taking neuroscience classes and i i ended up that's what i ended up focusing on in college and i didn't go to film school i went um I, i went to wesleyan university and i i took a bunch of neuroscience when I got out of school, I thought I had gotten into filmmaking at the same time. I was I was making documentaries in the summers, and um, I had made my first documentary about the oil boom in North Dakota, which went to South by Southwest in 2009. And right after that project, I thought um, I'd love to try to make a film about 
about neuroscience, about this brain stuff I was really into ever since reading this book. But it was really difficult to figure out what how you tell a story about um, brain science these days that has a sort of like neat conclusion or that can wrap up in your third act somehow because the, the, the what, what you find out is that the science is is deeply interesting but it's very early in our sense of like final answers or or any you know satisfying conclusion to these deep existential questions of like how the cells in the brain underlie consciousness or make that happen so I, I didn't see how I could actually resolve that until I saw this talk by the scientist who said, in 10 years, I will build a, a full simulation of a human brain that will be conscious, that will have a consciousness, that will speak languages. So it was a very sci-fi concept, but he was a well-respected scientist whose papers I had read in classes and in college. So I thought, you know, if he's and this is this is a scientist named Henry Markram who I ended up making this film about. If, if I, I thought if he's saying this, if he if he's saying he can do it in ten years, that gives me something to peg my timeline for a documentary to. So it, it you know it's a potential third act there at the end of a decade. It's going to take a lot of time. Um, but as a twenty two year old, I thought ten years was kind of like you know just long enough where it could happen, but short enough where I could imagine in finishing this film someday. And that's kind of how it got started. Thinking back on history, that 10-year goal harkens back to the the space race that we're going to, Kennedy said in 1960, we're going to put a man on the moon in 10 years. That's right. Yeah, I think there's something psychologically um, resonant about, about a decade of that kind of timeline. I think just, just for the reasons per, perhaps that it resonated for me, that where it's long enough where you could imagine the, the technology and everything and the funding coming together to get a man on the moon. But it, it's short enough where people can imagine still being alive to see it happen, potentially. So it, yeah, it's important about 10 years. Yeah, It has an air of authenticity, credibility, if you will, for, right. for such, a, such a monumentally difficult project. As you were beginning to get into this, and you said you were inspired by the TED Talk that Henry Markram gave, did you approach him right away? What was the sort of the, the kind of getting to know him? Because in the film, you, Noah Hutton, are the guide narrator. You are really walking us through this and it, with the help of a lot of experts who are a part of the film. What happened when you approached him, when, when you got to Henry? or How did you make that transition? There we go. Yeah, I... I um tried emailing him a couple times and that got no response. I was, you know, I was 22 and I I hadn't, I'd only made this one film, but he was a world renowned scientist. And I'm, and as I found out later, had had other people approaching him who wanted to start filming with him to make a documentary. So I, I, I may have sort of been low priority, I think at the beginning there, I actually ended up getting over and, and being able to get a meeting with him because I had I was doing, I was sort of freelancing in New York at the time. I had been starting to do commercials and music videos in New York City. And because of my, you know, nerded out interest in this neuroscience stuff, I had done a music video for a scientist at NYU, also a very renowned neuroscientist named Joe Ledoux, but he had a band called the Amygdaloids and they had a rock, a, a brain themed rock band. And so I had found myself doing a music video for them. Um, and it turned out that Joe Ledoux knew Henry from the circuit. And Joe vouched to Henry for me when I told him, hey, I'm trying to get in touch with this Henry Markram, who I saw give this talk, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to do you know, a 10-year film to match his big 10-year promise. So Joe wrote him an email and got me, you know, got me kind of in in terms of access. And I went over there and 
proposed to Henry to to do this. And I'm and I'm not sure that other filmmakers or whoever else was approaching him said that they would stick around for 10 years. Um, it's that's unusual in the tempo of making films to, you know, maybe it takes a few years to make, but um something so longitudinal, it's been done. Certainly Apted's seven up series was a big inspiration for me of in terms of a longitudinal project. But I think that may have been attractive for them, the, the idea of someone who a, a journalist who wasn't going to try to come and do a quick hitter story and tell the story and get out and make it maybe more sensational as a result. But I was really going to stick around for the decade. So they gave me access. And to their credit, they continued to give me access. It wasn't just for the first few years or something. They let me keep coming back for the full decade. It's an amazing part of the film to watch that unfold. Let's take a step back and talk about the science of the brain and where we are on the continuum of understanding how the brain operates. And where's the science? Where was it 10 years ago? Was there something about this moment in history of science of, around the brain that made this seem more plausible? What were the kind of the cultural, if you will, the scientific cultural elements that went into what Henry was trying to do? Yes, this was a time, this was 2009. This was a time, if you know, if folks remember, neuroscience and brain sciences were really much more in the public conversation than they are these days. These days, I would say AI has eclipsed the conversation um, to, of where neuroscience kind of was then. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll still read an occasional scientist discovered X, Y, and Z about the brain story, but really these days you're seeing uh, much more coverage and hype around Google's DeepMind and, you know, various AI efforts by Silicon Valley firms. At this point in 2009, um, neuroscience was very much in vogue, but Importantly, on a cultural level within neuroscience, Silicon Valley was rising fast and Silicon Valley was rubbing off on the, the possibilities that I think neuroscientists saw ahead of them in the, in the decade to come. So it was a time for someone like Henry Markram um, seeing these, these supercomputers do incredible things like I cover in the film IBM's Deep Blue uh, supercomputer, which had beaten Gary Kasparov in chess finally. Um, back in 1997. So it's sort of the turn of the millennium. You had supercomputers threatening humans at, at some of these things that had, had long been guarded by humans as the last bastions of human intelligence. We had chess fall then. And then um, go, since, didn't go happen around did go happen around that time? Go happened later in the in the time I was making this film. So the go happened in, in the 2010s, I, I believe um around yeah, around 2015 in the middle of that that decade. So that took a while longer. But the point is that that Henry and I think many other neuroscientists at this time were very heavily influenced by the technologies coming out of Silicon Valley and saw them as potentially groundbreaking to to move neuroscience along even faster and to maybe even in our lifetimes get some answers to these big, deep existential questions. So for Henry, it was let's we have enough data. We have we can we can generate all these experiments, you know, for the rest of our lives, but someone's got to put it all together. We've got to take all these insights we gain from poking and prodding at rat brains and mouse brains and fly brain. We got to put it all together in a digital simulation and only through building it will we understand it. And that's, it turns out as a very controversial approach, continues to be a controversial approach right. in the field. But it wouldn't seem like it would be. No. And in fact, it makes a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to me as a, when I was 22, I, I thought, and, and I wasn't attuned to any of the criticism at the time. I, I just, because I had read his papers, because he's a celebrated cellular biologist, this scientist, I thought, 
Well, certainly he's seen a path forward. We should embrace a new technology that can help us put it all together and simulate a brain. That makes a lot of sense. You know, harnessing these vastly powerful new tools from Silicon Valley to do this. So I sort of latched my um, project to him uncritically. And I thought, I'm going to make this film about this effort. I'm not going to necessarily even think that there's criticism out there. And I'm just going to go once a year and cover their progress. And that, you know, that to me is a compelling film. And that's what I started to do. And I started to release little bits of it online every year. And it was only like three years in when I, I started to get blowback for the pieces I was putting online. I was I started to hear about the criticism. And so I, my own journey to realize that this thing I was covering was had a lot of um, critics and was controversial ends up being part of the, the story of this film itself. Yeah, and to your credit, you introduced these voices from the chorus who are saying maybe this isn't such a it's it's not going to end up being what it's being purported to be that because of the so many variables that go into our brains and how they behave. I, I love this part of the film. I absolutely well, I love the film anyway, but I just the fact that all of these elements from these, these critiques of the project make it make this film so much more interesting and compelling and and thoughtful i would have thought why would anyone critique someone trying to figure out how our brains work right but maybe not the other thing that you just mentioned was the chess game with kasparov mm, yeah and that is another element that shows up later on in the film i don't want to give it away but how it's elemental to brains how it literally plays out is something that's incredibly relatable Big Blue, or was it Big Blue at the time, or was it Deep Blue? Yeah, Deep Blue. Okay. The very interesting Henry Markram and his ability to pull in very accomplished scientists into the project. He's a very charismatic person. Mm -hmm. I really respect what he's what he is about and what he's trying to accomplish here. I didn't. I was waiting for a reveal that would have been something else about him, some (laughs) charlatan or some. Mm -hmm. It's not. He is he is a compelling man. He's driven. He is he's purposeful in the, in the film. How would you describe his I guess management style, his philosophy about mm-hmm. this? Because we there's a lot of discussion about it. How how would you characterize that part of him and and this project? I, I think that he has a single mindedness in his leadership style that both helps him and and potentially has hurt him in certain uh, regards. And and the single-mindedness is the sort of determination, the drive to do this thing, which ends up being pretty controversial within the field, which I didn't realize at first. But turns out that a lot of scientists don't think that we're ready to use supercomputers to model an entire brain um, because we don't yet know enough about the, the building blocks and the right level of detail to start building such a, a model in, in a supercomputer. So the fact that he that Henry says, yes, we do, we we certainly do know enough and we can start doing it now and we can do it this way, and then sticks with that over the years, sells that to funders. He's incredibly charismatic, as you mentioned. So when he makes the case, you know, the governments and funding agencies have opened their their pockets for him, their wallets for him, and funded this project very well because he's so convincing that we need to, you know, people love especially coming out of the Silicon Valley ethos um, in the in the early 2000s, people loved the idea of, a, of disrupting a field that is moving too lethargically. And so when you when you can reference all of these degenerative 
um, diseases in, in, in terms of the brain, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia. And for Henry, he has a son who's autistic. So for him, it was actually um, a personal motivation that he talks about in the film as, as driving his frustration with the field to begin with. When you can mention, rattle those off and then say, hey, we need to, we're not never going to crack these, these conditions and come up with actual um, solves for them and, and cure them potentially even, unless we accelerate this lethargic field. We, we stop doing our individual siloed experiments and we put it all together in some kind of big disruptive new push. And that for funders is very appealing because we, we saw that happen to so many inter- industries by various Silicon Valley startups. Now I would, I have, I have a critique there too, where it's like, yes, Uber disrupts, you know, traditional transportation industries, but is that a good thing, right? I think many people can draw the arc now over the decades since Silicon Valley came in in such an exciting way and said, we're going to disrupt all this stuff. And we can wonder if the effects were actually net positive or negative for our world that we live in. And I think that's why this film now maybe resonates, hopefully beyond this, this particular project of neuroscience a little bit as uh, you know, auditing the the salesmanship that goes into being a being a kind of maverick disruptor and saying, hey, funders, I have a way to do this better than everyone else. If you just give me the money, I'm going to put it all together. We're going to cure schizophrenia. We're going to cure Alzheimer's. We're going to have a consciousness on a machine. So to answer the long way of answering your question, I, I think Henry's single mindedness of this as the as his disruptive approach, he needed to, to not show any self-doubt you know, in and he needed, he needed to not waver at all over the decade. Um, so when people would wonder if, they, if, for example, they were simulating the brain at the right level of detail, if they did have all the data they needed to do to do it this way, if they should have integrated what's called a top-down approach a little bit more throughout the course of the project, rather than just putting these building blocks together and hoping all of these things emerge from it, then, you know, when when these criticisms came in, I really saw Henry double down. Some people would maybe entertain the criticism, modulate their approach. You know, he's so sure that this is the way to do it, that both galvanizes his his own camp. So as a classic leadership style, you know, it's like when your troops look at you and you waver, you know, you you might risk losing their their allegiance as you rush into battle. <laughs> so I think Henry really saw the need to but he actually believes in it. It wasn't just a, a calculated thing that this is the way to do it. And so people have really very partisan way stuck behind him in the project all these years. And on the other side of that, people have come out and and cried out even harder against him because he's so dogmatic about this being the way to do it. And so that's all in the film. You know, there's a big rupture in the middle of this film and the story where all of these scientists sign an open letter and kind of oust him from the project leadership. And that's the kind of dramatic rise and fall of the of the decade that I that I followed. And a lot of them talk about his leadership style as being an issue. So many scientists just don't, you don't see them doing that. You see the kind of humility, you know, science, scientific method has an ethos where people are trying to prove each other wrong. And you, you are even often as a scientist trying to prove yourself wrong. And and there is an element of doubt and admitting that you don't know everything that I would say most scientists exhibit. And Henry is not, uh, I would say Henry is more like a Silicon Valley leader than he is um, a traditional biological scientist, uh, academic scientist. And, you know, he maybe has more to, more in common with someone like Ray Kurzweil, 
who's now at Google and is such a futurist and likes to project just like Henry does where we're going to be in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. That way of thinking, you know, I think he has much more affinity with that than he does with the the siloed academic science uh, model where everyone sort of hedges and equivocates and and um, does their own work, but is always seeing if someone else is going to prove them wrong. And But to lead a huge project and to get the money, you probably had to have a leadership style like Henry. Now, the last thing about that is that you kind of alluded to this, but a lot of people come into this film looking for and the story looking for um, that reveal that you're talking about, that you felt too, because I think we are in an era now. This is not, this is very different from when I started, but now we've seen the the other side of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. We've seen those stories um, curdle and we've seen the sort of um, charlatan aspect, as you said, be revealed at a certain point. And, you know, this story doesn't have that. This is not an Elizabeth Holmes story. This Henry is not that person. He, there, there is not some grand ruse here. There's a lot of disagreement that this is the right way to to use public funds to study the brain. And I think that's where the criticism is very valid from my point of view is when you're when you're being funded, when you're not when you're not just getting startup money and or or profiting from the largesse of a billionaire, if you're taking money from uh, government allocation, from taxpayer money for scientific research, and you were convincing people that this is the right way to use that money to study a public health issue, then I think you do open yourself up to criticism because other people might have been able to use that money better. Just want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Noah Hutton, and he's the director as well as producer, editor, cinematographer, at, and and yeah, a lot. What else did you do? Composer. <laughs> Congratulations on that. We're speaking with Noah Hutton. He is the director of In Silico. It's a documentary film that you can find out more about by going to insilicofilm.com. I-N-S-I-L-I-C-O film.com. Find out more about it. In terms of screening, in terms of how people will be able to watch the film, how's this going to happen? It's coming out on, on a VOD platform, streaming platforms on September 13th. So from that day onward, people can access it. And I'm telling people to, I'm pointing most people towards um, Vimeo On Demand. Um, it's, it'll also be on iTunes, on Apple TV. I, I like the Vimeo On Demand route because it's the one, it's the way most people around the world will be able to access it. It's the only international option. So this film, hopefully will, a lot of people will want to check it out from around the world because it is a kind of international story. It's a very European story too. So Vimeo On Demand is where we'll be linking to mostly, but people can can find it on their preferred platform. I also noticed on the site, host a party, host a, a home video viewing. Yes, and we've been doing a lot of this last year as people have kind of improvised in distribution out of, uh, out of COVID, the COVID era. We had a virtual theatrical run with the film where we were in like 50 theaters across the country on their virtual platforms, which is also what I did with my other film, Lapsus. And, and so we did that for this film. Coming out of that, we've been doing a lot of uh, hosted screenings at universities and institutions and labs that have been interested because this film, everyone in the neuroscience community knows about this project and Henry Markram. So there's been a lot of interest in hosting screenings at, at various universities and stuff. So I've been having a good time going around with, with that uh, process. I'll bet. And I just going back to what you just said a couple of minutes ago about scientists, they're a uh, cantankerous bunch. But they're also in the doubting business. That really is their bread and butter to be doubtful, right? Yeah. 
And it's to all of our benefit for them to be doubtful. And maybe something that's true today won't be true two years from now or four years from now. And if they come forward and say, you know, that wasn't exactly what we thought. And we're here's how look at climate, right? I mean, yep. we're we're in an era where they've been warning us for 35, 40 years, and they were always getting dinged for, well, look, it's still snowing, or look, it's this, right. it's, look, it's that, right? right? And every time this kind of stuff starts to happen, they come back and say, well, here's more data. Right. That's why we're right. Here's how right. we know more. And here's where we weren't quite right. Right. So I love this film about for that reason. And I, I did, there's so many things. And, you know, you're talking about Henry in terms of, you know, he, he, I look at that, that projection of where we were going to be as akin to the Jetsons cartoon, where we thought <laughs> in a few years we were going to be driving around in flying cars and it's Kurzweil, right? Yes. It's that idea. And yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. One last question to ask you in terms of, sort of the personal side of this. It feels like this was a journey for you. And uh, not only as a filmmaker, but also in terms of your curiosity about the project. I do think observationally that the fact that they're mapping neurons, the fact that there are things that are going on, whether or not they turn out to be what Henry says it's going to end up being, is almost beside the point. And maybe it is there's money being wasted. And I I mean, I understand all of the different variables here could or could not work out in the ways, Mm -hmm. but there is some value, no matter what, there's some very valuable work going on. And I think that that's important enough, but near the end of the film, Henry kind of reappears near the end of the film. And one of the first things that he's talking about is making a movie about the project while you're in the room filming them something you've been doing for nearly 15 years. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you want it. Maybe this is too personal, your reaction, well, how you felt. And, but what was your, if you don't mind, what was your reaction when you're sitting in a room and they're talking about somebody coming in here and documenting what we've been doing? I, <laughs> <laughs> I think at that point, they, they, they realized I was, I was a different type of filmmaker. I was not the, the person they would want to to make their film because that is the you know that what they're talking about at the and not to give away too much because it's it's the sort of the ending of of my film but henry was very attuned and continues to be I, I assume very attuned to the promotional efforts behind this project and you know that's that's both because it's a somewhat opaque project they're building a simulation in a computer that you can't you know you can't really see much about what they're doing unless they show you this the visualizations and they put that and those are usually movies and that's what honestly got me hooked about this project to begin with it's kind of stunning these fly-throughs of the brain that they're building right so he's very attuned to getting that out into the world and i'm not sure i, I think by by that point that was the final year i was filming and he realized that i i was sort of on my independent journey as a filmmaker with a, a somewhat critical eye towards all of this and that he you know he he wanted to continue his own promotional efforts you know totally separate from what i was doing so although i was also a filmmaker i don't think he ever would have thought of me to to handle the promotional efforts for his project which is absolutely fair i just thought i thought it was interesting to see how um they continued to present their own story because that's something that i had been doing all of these years and then all all of a sudden on screen as you're saying here's their storyboard for their own self-presentation of their narrative. So I, I thought that was, wow, this is such a weird sort of meta moment where I'm here capturing them, trying to capture their story. And I, I thought there was something interesting about that. What came to mind for me is it felt like it could have been something out of lapses. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's there's a reason the same. You know, it's it's. I think I'm I'm interested in something that is fundamental to both of these these projects. Yeah. Well, my congratulations to you on In Silico and continue your work. Noah, I just love. I love these two films that uh, I've been privileged enough to spend a little time talking to you about uh, Lapsus and now in Silico. And um, your your work is smart and interesting and provocative. And the fact that you're you've got your documentary work and then you've got your narrative work. And I I hope you continue to explore the world that we are we are about to enter because that's what your films feel like. They're they're sort of science fiction. Two years from now, or four yeah, years, right. exactly. <laughs> who, knows where, who knows where we'll end up? But I just think uh, it's just so so compelling. And uh, congratulations, seriously, congratulations to you on your work and continue continue along the path. Thank you so much, Mike. It's really always fun to talk to you about the work, and I appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music